listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, Canada made news at the Republican nominee debate in Miami last night when Vivek Ramaswamy said he thought a wall along the world's longest undefended border is an idea worth considering. Even Donald Trump, who's skipping those debates, dismissed the idea, but it's got people talking and we'll look into it. Gary Clement spent decades with the RCMP, working his way up to superintendent, battling all forms of crime in the interim, from drugs to money laundering. Now he's put that journey down in a book called Undercover, where he argues that the Mounties are no longer able to properly fight increasingly sophisticated organized crime groups. He joins me to explain why. There is growing concern tonight over a spike in acts of anti-Semitism across the country, including shots fired at two Jewish schools in Montreal overnight. One of the schools is in the riding of Liberal MP Anthony Housefather, and he joins me to talk about the incidents and those concerns. But first, the new Beatles single, Now and Then, released last week, is a mix of old and new, but alongside the Fab Four, the voice of John Lennon, uh, enhanced and, and perfected thanks to AI, was recorded back in the 1970s, and Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr playing live, George Harrison from studio sessions back in the 90s, are the sounds of a viola player. She passed away in March, not knowing that she'd in fact played on a Beatles record. She knew that she'd been called into a session with Paul McCartney without knowing what the final product would be. It came as a bittersweet surprise to her family. We talked to her mom about uh, her life and this final epithet being a member ever so briefly of the Beatles. We're actually going to start with a guest who is in the U.S. in Charlottesville tonight in Virginia, which is not a... Uh, not a quick drive from the Canadian border, but still, and it has to do with the new Beatles song, which we talked about, of course, when it was released last week. Um, I mean, it's a mix of old and new uh, musicians, past and present, with the Lennon, with Lennon joining and Harrison joining McCartney and Starr to kind of recreate that magical Fab Four sound, with with a little help from artificial intelligence to clean up. Uh, Lennon's voice, which was recorded long ago in the late 70s, was always a bit too scratchy for it to work. Uh, they couldn't do it back in the mid-90s when they released that anthology record, uh, but they were able to do it now with the help of some AI. And if you've heard it, I mean, Lennon's voice is so clear in it. Uh, but Paul McCartney took charge of this whole project, really, uh, the long-delayed one. Recording a last Beatles song was really something he desperately wanted to do, and he wanted it to be this one now and then uh, that John Lennon had sort of kind of recorded sort of as a demo back in the the late 70s. In listening to the original versions and kind of building it, he really thought the record could use strings. And he explains why here. I've been vaguely thinking strings might be a good thing. The Beatles did lots of string things, you know, Strawberry Fields, Yesterday, I'm the Walrus. We wanted to go to Capitol Studios because that had been EMI and it was sort of beatle Giles worked up an arrangement like Giles's dad would have done in the old days. We had to put the music out on the stands for the musicians, but we couldn't tell them it was a new Beatles song. It was all a bit hush-hush. We pretended it was just something of mine.
Paul McCartney there describing why they put strings on Now and Then. So, of course, back in April 2022, they invite session musicians from L.A. to come in to play on what will become a Beatles song. But, of course, as he points out, none of them know this at the time. It's sheet music with a fictitious song title on it. And so they wouldn't have known what they were doing at the time. One of the people playing that day was Caroline Buckman. She was a violinist. She had tons of credits over the course of her career. Mad Men, Breaking Bad, movies, Star Wars, Star Trek, Mission Impossible. She'd worked with Brian Wilson, Neil Young, R.E.M. She had incredible CV. So there she is. She's one of the many musicians that are invited in um, to play on, on this, what is going to be now and then, except, of course, they don't know it at the time. She even asked McCartney for an autograph, and she'd never done that, apparently, professionally. And she came home with the sheet music signed by Paul McCartney without knowing what exactly this would end up being. Now, that was 18 months ago, and Caroline, who'd been living with breast cancer for, for breast cancer for several years, sadly passed away in March at the age of 48. So it was only when the song was released last week that her loved ones learned that Caroline's musical legacy had one more absolutely glorious moment to add to it, and that was the fact that she had played on the last Beatles song. Have a quick listen to what it sounds like with the strings. Yeah, there you have it. Um, Caroline's mom, Erica, is in Charlottesville, and she joins me now. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, and, and our condolences too uh, on, on about your loss, and then and then this moment uh, that you learned that she played on this Beatles record. It must have been, it must have been a very bittersweet moment to find that out. It was. I was so surprised because I had a very sort of melancholy day and was kind of sad. I was missing Caroline because she always would call. I don't get any calls anymore. And then I get the call from Alex Panetta from your Canadian company mm -hmm. informing me that he wanted to do a story on Caroline. And that was absolutely, I mean, it brought me to tears. It literally did. And I was ecstatic. I said, of course. And I provided some information to him and um willing to do so with you. I yeah. mean, it was really, I'm so proud of her, I can't tell you. Had you heard the record before the phone call came? No. No. No, I did not. That was the first thing I heard, because he called me on Friday, and I had not heard uh, the record before. No. Right. What was it like to hear it for the first time and know that, um, know that she'd played on it? Oh, it was beautiful. Just beautiful, I must say. I was, you know, I was so excited about it, really excited. It's it's a beautiful song, and I think the strings really make it too. It it gives it the volume that it needed. It sounds so good. I mean, I listened to it over and over again. Huh. I enjoyed and it ex extremely, very much. I must say. Tell me a bit about. Carolyn, because she she had, she grew up in Charlottesville, right? That's a long way from Los Angeles, but she obviously had big dreams and and made them come true. Oh, absolutely. Well, she always, uh, as a teenager, she was saying to me she wanted to get away away from Char as far away from Charlottesville as possible. Which, to my surprise, you know, obviously I'm the mother. I didn't want her to go far away, but she was a determined young lady. 
And she landed up at the Arizona State University to study music. But it started in Charlottesville, actually. In elementary school, there were two teachers here that came into town and that started recording strings for an orchestra, which we never had in the public schools. And so they developed a string orchestra in the middle school and the high school. And even that high school orchestra was extremely successful. They did many tours, they competitions everywhere. They did very, very well. And so that actually was an inspiration for Caroline to go under the music. She also was in the youth orchestra here. She played in local gigs. So she was determined she's going to study music, and she landed up in Arizona at ASU. And there she studied under Dr. Majors. And after that, she also went to Dresden for one year to get her master's in music. She spent a whole year there. And when she came back, she decided, now I'm going to make my way to California. She said, that's where the opportunities are, and that's where I want to be. So there again, a long way from home. But she settled there. She started off working in a travel agency. She also started working for the Henry Mancini Institute and kind of made connections with the music world and friends, including people that also went to ASU that she had contact with. So, and over the years, she really blossomed. I mean, she has been in many, many performances. She's very versatile. Uh, She played classical music. She played rock music. You name it. Right. Did she tell you about the Paul McCartney session? Oh, absolutely. I knew about it. Because I remember this was in September of, in 22. Hmm. When she called me, she says, you won't believe it, who I'm going to play with. And I said, who? And she said, Paul McCartney. I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) I used to say to her, we used to dance to the Beatles. I mean, twist and shout, you know, every party we had. We would dance yeah. to the Beatles. I mean, I'm from that era where the Beatles were huge. But even right. then, you know, when my children were here living with me, we used to dance there to the Beatles music. It was incredible. Right. Who didn't like the Beatles? Erica Buckman is with us this half hour. We're talking about the new Beatles song now and then because her daughter, Caroline, played strings, played violin on the record without knowing that no, she was going to be... It's the viola, rather. Sorry, the viola. She played the viola on the record. Thank you for correcting me. Um, and what? she did this session with Paul McCartney back in, I guess, a year, about a year ago now, and didn't know that it would be this would be the final uh, project. Uh, Carol, Erica, when when you what, what would Caroline have thought, knowing that this is what she had been playing on? Do you think? Oh, she would have been ecstatic. Absolutely, she she would have been beside herself. She would have found out she is on the final record. She really would. She would have jumped for joy. Yeah. I know that. So it's it's a feather in her head. I think it sort of it's it added something to her, despite a short life. But I think it sort of enriched the legacy of her accomplished and versatile music career. It really did. Yeah. 
And she, I mean, even when she was, she was sick, she continued to play, right? She must have loved it. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, her last performance was on the 25th of October, 22, when she was on Indiana Jones, which is a John Williams uh, mm-hmm. movie. He wrote the music for that. And that was her last performance. She did quite a few. She did Mission Impossible, Star Wars, Breaking Bad, Better Call Soul, Mad Men. I mean, you name it. She was in many of recordings, yeah. a lot of recording music. And one other thing also, she played with, was it, um, Ben Harper? Right. <laughs> yeah. Did you believe it? Yeah. I mean, you must have been... Uh... I know that you left East Germany as a as a kid and wound up in England and then wound up in the U.S. Um, yes. I mean, you, you did a lot of journeying yourself through life as well, but uh, you must be very proud. Yes, I am. I'm extremely proud of her. And I mean, the thing is, <laughs> I always felt that my children should be exposed to music. That's why we came home with the piano from East Germany, which is insane, really. My husband said, are you out of your mind? I said, oh, no. I said, I never had a chance. I said, I want a piano in the house. And that's how Callan actually started. And I'd taken lessons, too, because I never knew how to read music. So consequently, Callan bugged me, and I finally signed up for lessons. And I told you, it took no time, and she overtook me. (laughs) And I said, well, I said, you continue, because I will never make it. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I'm too old for that game. So, and she really did well. And my son started taking, my other daughter took it, but Karen is the only one who really pursued it. And she was very good at it. And I'm glad, you know, that she chose the viola because, well, she wanted actually to play the cello. I said, absolutely not. I said, we had a small small VW. No way can I transport a cello in that small car. And so she said, okay, then it's going to be the viola. I said, okay. So that's how she actually ended up with that instrument. Because it fit. That's all yes. kind of neat. And it has done her well. And she was very determined to succeed. What, um, yeah, go Apart ahead. from that, I think she was a really wonderful daughter, very kind-hearted, loving, um, had lots of friends, had a wonderful smile. You never will see a picture with Caroline where she doesn't smile. I mean, anybody who came across Caroline remembered Caroline. Yeah. It's incredible. When I was in L.A., you know, after she had passed, people in the neighborhood would talk to me about what happened to Caroline, how they missed her, because she was such a nice person. So... Yeah, I, I guess in some ways, sadly, but but in, in in a way that might be helpful to some, including you, you'll be able to hear her. She she will live yes. forever on those on those recordings. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, Erica, I uh, I really appreciate you sharing Carolyn's story and your story with me tonight, and uh, thank you so much. And our condolences, of course. It can't okay. be easy, but yeah. What is very nice of you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's something, there's something pretty peculiar about that song called Heart on My Sleeve. It sounds like Drake and The Weeknd, right? If you know that stuff, but it isn't. It was created by Ghostwriter. In other words, it was using 
it's AI generated audio. And as he puts it on his YouTube channel, none of the voices you hear are actually from Drake or The Weeknd, right? And it was downloaded. I mean, it was watched many, many, many times because it sounds pretty similar. And, you know, we were just talking about the Beatles single now and then. Uh, and, of course, there's been talk about how AI was used there to finally be able to isolate and enhance John Lennon's voice from a very scratchy sounding um, demo tape from back in the late 70s. And so there's just a lot of talk these days about how artificial intelligence and art mix both for the good and, you know, perhaps for the bad as well. Um, you know, Paul McCartney, in terms of what he did, and it's it's different, I guess, when you're sort of taking something that already exists and just trying to preserve it in a better way or enhance it in a better way. Paul McCartney sort of defended the use of AI uh, on that Beatles single, saying that, you know, they'd always espoused new technology even back in the 60s. Uh, but again, it is a hot debate. It was one of the sticking points for actors as they were on strike. That ended last night. Uh, some of that was around AI and how to better protect image rights and lots of other things that AI could replicate, for instance. And we asked Canadian actor and producer Julian Dezotti, uh last night uh, about the end of the strike, but also about this whole uh, concerns around all these concerns around artificial intelligence. Here's what he had to say. And I think with the actors, it was particularly precarious because to be able to own someone's likeness forever, even if, they, even if they've passed on or use a version of Tom Hanks in another movie. I mean, these are all sort of scenarios that they had to really think about and make sure that, you know, actors were protected into the future and also being compensated for it. Right. And these are things that my next guest, Jim Parker, who's a professor of computer science at the University of Calgary, or computer science and art, rather, at the University of Calgary, has thought about. He's written a piece for a special edition of Maclean's magazine called The Age of AI and the Future of Humanity. It's called Studios Will Steal Artists' Faces and Voices. And Jim Parker joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. So how far, I mean, we talk a lot about the possibles, right, about what ifs, but where are we in terms of AI's ability to kind of create what we think of as artistic work, like the, the likeness of a Tom Hanks, for instance? Well, you know, we can reproduce voices given a sample of the original. We can reproduce pictures given somebody's face. We can reproduce uh, the way people write. So the question is, who actually owns that? Material does the the person who wrote it, does the person who uh, whose face it is or whose voice it is actually own that? And I think that's a serious, serious question. Right. So for you, for you, a lot of this is just about the copyright, the sort of the ownerships, and that was what was going on with the actors' strike as well. It's sort of who owns. How do you how do you figure out who owns what when everything is sort of being. Uh, created because AI ultimately is creating is is sort of a pastiche of stuff that is already out there, right? So it belongs technically. You'd think it would belong to someone else already. Well, it's true that uh, it seems like it's a copyright issue, but really it's it's an ownership issue. When I mm. write something, do I own it? Uh, when I sing a song, do I own it? When I create an artwork, do I own it? And I think. I think those are really critical issues now, and we need to sort that out, because um, if I don't, then who does own it? Does somebody who can sample my voice own it? And, and, and given how much stuff is available on the Internet now from all of us, um, that's a serious question. Yeah. I mean, you refer to that song we played off the top the weekend, uh, Drake mm -hmm. thing, Heart on My Sleeve, in your article, uh, yep. because actually that's where I found it. But <laughs> that that is a very, very convincing uh, piece of work. I mean, it's not yep. a great song and it's not particularly memorable, but it, it does sound an awful lot like the real thing. Well, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I was listening to um, 
um, a program on the radio the other morning, and uh, they played three uh, sound clips. One was uh, an original sound clip from uh, now and then um, the new Beatles thing. And, and yes, mm-hmm. it had been enhanced by AI, but the other two had been written in the style of the Beatles. And the question is, you know, who can you identify this? And yes, I could, but that's only for now. I think in the future they may get better and better at um, determining how to reproduce the Beatles or the Stones or some other artists' uh, music. And the question is, who really should own that? I mean, if 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 I write a song, if I write a poem, if I write a book, um, is that mine anymore? Right. Well, I mean, the, and, and you've pointed out a, a gap, right? I mean, as always, these sorts of things rarely keep pace with the technology. We saw it with right. downloading yeah. and stealing. And I mean, we've seen it happen again and again and again. It doesn't feel like we've quite caught up to this one yet either, by the way. <laughs> no, that's true. And I think the the interesting thing is that the, the strike lately of the Reuters and the actors have um, hit upon the key issue. Uh, do I... You know, what do you need from me as a writer? What do you need from me as an actor? And who owns it? Um, if if uh, I mentioned Sean Penn in my article, but uh, if somebody like Sean Penn is acting in a film, um, and, and it's not really him, it's a synth- synthetic version of Sean Penn, um, you know, is that really fair? Who should be the person who receives the... Uh, uh, the credits for that, and who should receive, I guess, in some sense, the uh, the money that that brings in. The money would be the big one. I was thinking back to sort of, you know, back when Sean Connery decided he didn't want to be James Bond anymore. And if you own the James <laughs> yeah. Bond franchise, you just recreate Sean Connery and put him back on screen. You already you owned... You could. And, and you put it out, made a really good point, I think, in the article as well, that at some point, the, the people, the, you know, the studios, we don't want to demonize the studios and the record companies and so on. But at some point, you'd think when they're signing new artists, they would say, listen, you know, do you want your movie shot? Well, we're going to own the way you sound and the way you look for whatever many years. So even if you decide to break contract and go somewhere else, we're still going to be able to do stuff with your right. likeness and your, and your voice. And that was an interesting thing, because I hadn't thought about that aspect of it at all. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, the technology is available on your laptop now, on your computer at home. So um, if if you really tick off Sean Penn sufficiently that he doesn't want to act with you, um, he can produce his own movies in his basement, and he can he can have anyone he wants acting with him. You right. know, in the sense that if AI can be used by the studios, it can be equally used by any actor, any creative person who wants to do this. So um, I think it's important to attribute the, the, uh, uh, the credit for that skill, the acting skill, the writing skill, the music skill, to the person who has it. And, uh, and then, you know, decide, well, okay, this is him. Let's pay them what they're worth and move on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to point out to listeners, you're not you're not opposed to AI and art. In fact, if anything, no. it's probably going to be very interesting. It just we yeah. need to, like everything, you know, the, a brave new world is a brave new world. Yeah, no, we have to adapt to it. And uh, like, I'm a professor, so I understand about teaching. And so, um, you know, the, the things that people mention are well, you know, what about people in university using Chat GPT to write their essays? Well, okay, so um, this is something we have to live with. The fact is that ChatGPT is a new technology, and we can use it to do what we want. So we need to teach people how to use it.
for an appropriate um, result. So maybe it should be used to res- to produce uh, a first draft, for example, and then the the person can adapt it to their um, to their particular purpose. Maybe it should be used to develop a melody, and then you can go on to develop. Uh, a more detailed song and, and move on. So I think for creative purposes, this is interesting, and it's not the final product. It's 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 something that people are going to use to produce something new. Jim Parker is with us this half hour. He's a professor of computer science and art at the University of Calgary. He's just written a piece for a special edition of Maclean's magazine called The Age of AI and the Future of Humanity, in which he looks at uh, the artistic side of things. The title of the article is Studios Will Steal Artists' Faces and Voices. We've been talking a bit about that idea. Jim, we, I've, I've had taught this conversation a few times over the past year or so, and one of the areas that keeps popping up, and I think you pointed out as well, is that the area where AI will start to see its make inroads in what we consider to be uh, artistic endeavors is for a lot of this stuff that's sort of working things, like writing yeah. jingles or writing scores for industrial mm-hmm. videos or just the sort of the more basic stuff. And that can, that can have some real detrimental impacts on all those working artists out there who don't make, you know, who aren't Taylor Swift, for instance. Yeah, the, the, a lot of people who are working in the artistic industries are actually writing and drawing and composing for a purpose. And, and that differs from fine art, which is, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do and communicate with the, the audience. Um, and the issue is simply that um, I think AI does a better job of that because there's so many examples of it, um, and they can use that for data and for training. Um, than there is for, uh, you know, fine art. I don't think, uh, I think that, that humans communicate using art all the time for everything they can imagine. You know, food is art. When you think about uh, how you cook, you know, you could just eat raw meat, but you don't. You, right. Our house is, is an artistic uh, creation. Um, things we listen to are art. But um, when you think about creating websites and covers for magazines and books and, and that sort of thing, that seems more banal, and yet it has been a creative enterprise. I think AI can, can cut a hole in that business for people. Right. I always think of sort of being able to ask uh, an AI program, you know, write, you know, Compose me uh, a jingle for this, you know, compose me some music for this little video I'm making that sounds a little bit tense, but is also fun, right? And it can do it. I mean, if you, if you keep commanding it properly, it'll create what you want. Uh, and this, But this could be very disruptive because, of course, there's a lot of people who work in the arts who supplement their sort of artistic endeavors, as you put it, sort of the stuff you'll hang in a gallery. By doing this kind of work, it's what yeah, pays the yeah. bills, right? Exactly, and and I I do think though um, it's not that easy really to get an AI system right now to do what you want. It, it'll get better, but uh, for example, one of the examples I'm using in my classes right now is uh, I say, well, I I tried to get a, an AI system to say, well, draw me a picture of a robot painting a picture, and it's really terrible at that, and and your audience can go off and try and do that. Right. It's really bad at getting... What it gets you is it, it parses the, the, the statement you give it, painting, picture, robot, and then it goes off and does something that it wants to do. And what you get is 
robots with paintings in the background, um, uh, that sort of thing. Um, right. But it'll get better. And, and so my concern is, and the concern of a lot of writers and artists, is that it's going to take a lot of the commercial aspects from artists, the things they can do. And I think that if that happens, they should be compensated for their loss. It's not like um, fishermen who didn't have any fish anymore, and so they couldn't fish. Um, we have people who are saying, well, I'm not going to pay an artist, I'm not going to pay a writer to do this job, because it's going to cost me more money than just asking an AI system to do it. And that's a different thing completely in my mind. It is. I mean, there's been some pushback already, of course, because with with machine learning such as ChatGPT, it's reading, yeah. right? I mean, it's really word yeah. pro it's processing words. Well, who's written those words? Somebody has already, right? It's taking other people's material. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, no, you're right, well, and 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 it, you know, people imagine that well, it's just you know making duplicates of what people are saying. No, it's not. It's composing new things based on what a number of people have written and recomposing it and, and putting it together. So the don't mistake the fact that there is somebody who wrote the program and who created this device, uh, which is a very impressive thing to do, really, that will take um, will learn from what people have said and produce a new thing. Um, but are they getting what they deserve from it? Are the artists who wrote the material getting what they deserve from it? I think there's an issue there that needs to be addressed. Yeah, you mentioned an AI tax. I'm sure you know. Anytime people hear the word tax, they kind of, kind yeah. of bristle. But 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 it's not. I mean, the way you describe it, the idea itself is, and and you, you, the the analogy of of you know the fishing of, of say the cod industry in the in Newfoundland yeah. is is a perfect example. When 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 companies start to, when something starts to vanish, what do you do? What do you do with them, right? right? And I mean, I suppose this matters how much any individual government cares about who the people who work in the arts, uh, and it might it might be a tough sell. But you think there should be compensation to some extent when certainly when when AI is used by companies to create things that are being built off the backs of other people's creativity. Yes, and it's not just AI. I understand that it started out, in my mind, as a, a, a general tax or levy, if you like, a payment for people who um, whose jobs are being removed by the use of computers. When I was a young person, and I'm not anymore, um, uh, the idea was that computers would be used to uh, help people to to um, uh, you know protect them from dangerous jobs, boring jobs, repetitive jobs, and what it's just doing is taking their jobs, which is not the same thing. So uh, the idea that I have is to say, okay, well, if if a computer or a robot, and, and let's, let's let's make AIs into robots because they're very similar, uh, takes work from you, then then you should be compensated. You shouldn't be just having your job taken from you. Um, because what that means is people with enough money can simply pay for a machine to do your work. Um, it should be, in fact, uh, that, let's say, somebody building a car. A robot is building the car now, and you have lost your job. Well, is that fair? Somebody is writing a magazine article, and an AI is now writing it. Is that fair? And I think the fact is that, yes, computers are taking those jobs, and they were supposed to make our lives better. Right. And by taking your job... That's not making your life better, is it? It's, no. it's just taking your work. Yeah, so that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying right. it should be a, a tax. A, people hear no. tax and go crazy. But I'm saying, you know, you should be compensated for, um, you know, the fact that a computer 
is doing your work, and that's a good thing. And so if it's a good thing, you should be compensated. You shouldn't have to lose your job and now have to sweep floors for a living because you're yeah. not writing books or painting pictures. Or, or really, I mean, we haven't, it's so far, the history of this has been, of automation has been one of, of, of very little sympathy for those who've lost, lost their Absolutely. jobs, unfortunately, on the way Absolutely. through. I suppose it's never too late to try to make up for that. But uh, right. Jim, uh, thanks, thanks so much. It was a fascinating article. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. The tension over the war in Gaza is continuing to be felt on the streets here at home. And for the second time in less than a week, uh, Jewish institutions in Montreal, my hometown, have been the target. Montreal police are investigating, tonight are investigating, uh, after shots were fired at two Jewish schools overnight. In both cases, uh, apparently the front doors have been struck by bullets. Police can't say whether there's a link between the incidents. Both schools, luckily, were empty at the time. Nobody was hurt. Um, Earlier this week, Molotov cocktails were thrown at a synagogue in the Montreal suburb of Dollar des Armeaux. And yesterday, there was a big fight that broke out at Concordia University, resulting in several injuries and one arrest. Um, On that one, Quebec's higher education minister says she's concerned about that violent altercation between supporters of Israel and pro-Palestinian students at Montreal's Concordia University that led, again, to one arrest. Pascal Derry uh, says she's been in touch with the heads of all the province's universities and is calling for calm. Last night, a letter was sent saying that we would not tolerate any uh, form of violence, any form of uh, anti-Semitism, any form of incitation to hatred. I think we really need to keep everything calm at this point. It is very, uh, very concerning what's going on. The Prime Minister, of course, who is also from Montreal, weighed in on both the university altercation and the targeting of those two Jewish schools overnight. Here's what he had to say. No matter how strongly felt your fears or convictions are, It doesn't give you the right to do what we saw yesterday at Concordia or in the shots fired at Jewish schools today in Montreal. These are not not who we are. Yeah, I mean, tensions are extremely high. And again, here's where it boils down to for me. Um, you can express an opinion. Listen, lots of people come to this country from all over the world, from places where people don't like each other, or have different thoughts on world events or how things are or history. I mean, that's part of what being Canadian is, right? We can agree to disagree on these things. But here, here, the social contract is we can't, we can't accept displays of hate. We can't. We can't have that here. I mean, passions are inflamed, understood. But when that turns to hate, when that turns to targeting of individual groups that live in this country, that's over the line. Now, again, we have laws in place for these things. I know those laws are sometimes hard to enforce. But there's also the law of just common sense, right? Do you celebrate the death of somebody else? Are you celebrating the murders of other people? That we don't do. At least we don't do it. We, we don't, we're not, that's not the social contract here. And I think that's what's being called out. And certainly um, the Jewish community in Montreal at this point, I mean, you can understand their schools are being targeted. Uh, synagogues, firebombed. I mean, this is absolutely unacceptable in our country. Uh, Anthony Housefather is the Liberal MP for the riding of Mount Royal, where one of the schools that was targeted is. And he joins me now. Anthony, thank you. Nice to be with you, Ben. I know this has been a tough day. Uh, we've been talking about this now for weeks, but this has been a really tough day in your riding um, with some shots fired at uh, two different schools. One, I think, is in your riding. Just what's the mood like with your with your with your constituents these days? I mean, there must be some real concern. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the Jewish community in Canada is feeling shocked and overwhelmed. I, I think we were all deeply troubled by Hamas's 
attack on Israel on the 7th of October. Canadian Jews have a lot of links to Israel. You know, some of us have family there, others have friends there. Many of us have visited Israel and it's a biblical homeland, the indigenous place for the Jewish people. So there's that link, you know, even if you've lived in Canada for seven, eight generations, you have a link. And then what seemed to happen that became much worse was we were first watching something horrendous happening abroad that we identified with, but then anti-Semitism started to grow in the Western world, including in Canada, and has grown to epic proportions that are unknown in my lifetime. Canadian Jews went from being deeply saddened and troubled by what was happening half a world away to being deeply saddened, troubled, angry, appalled, shocked over what was happening in our own country. And I think that's sort of the way my constituents who are Jewish feel. Yeah. And there's been some incidents of late that hit very close to home for you, too. I mean, this is your riding. You grew up there. Uh, your childhood synagogue was was fire. There was a firebomb attack uh, last week uh, or earlier this week uh, there. I mean, these are hitting very close to home for you, too, as a just as a Canadian and as a Jewish Montrealer and so forth. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the anguish the communities, you know, feels I feel, too. I was talking to a man at a recent rally who was a World War II veteran. So he has to be in his late 90s. And he told me he'd not seen anti-Semitism like this in Montreal since the 1930s when our call was marking, marching with the fascists. It's, it's deeply troubling. And, and as you mentioned, I grew up in Dollard on the West Island, which is not in my riding today, uh, where I've lived as an adult. That synagogue was firebombed. And then a school in my riding um, that I visited many, many times, because um, it has both an elementary school and a high school, and I've spoken at both of them was attacked last night at 4.30, well, this morning at 4.30 in the morning to 5, they believe, by having a bullet fired through the window. Everybody's scared and, and, and just worried that we're not recognizing our own community and our own country anymore. Worried that a small, like in my view, what is a small group of anti-Semites has taken over and we feel very alone and are waiting for everybody who's not Jewish to step up and support us and condemn it, but not only condemn it, make it stop from happening somehow. Yeah, I mean, that, therein lies the difficult question because I think we've seen an escalation. I mean, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think we, we sometimes, we don't want to lose focus with the fact that people can live in this country and have an attachment to another part of the world. And sometimes we can disagree on on the politics of the Middle East uh, here at home because we've been disagreeing about politics around the world for our entire lifetimes. doesn't matter what part of the world your family happens to be from or allegiance or, or has an attachment to. But when it comes to here, it's so important that the dialogue continue and that the hate not take over. And I, I think all of us are just a little worried right now about what we're seeing and certainly much more in the community, in your community being targeted. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think the important thing has always been that Canadians should be able to talk to each other. And other than rabid partisans, that historically has been what happened. And while, you know, the Jewish community and, for example, the Muslim community, um, obviously there's differentiations within communities, but may not see eye to eye generally on the issues of Israel and Palestine um, and the history, because everybody has their own history that they know from what their families have taught them and what they've learned in their own circles. We've never let that come between us in Canada to the extent it's now coming between us in Canada. You know, and we're, we're allied in a lot of issues. For example, in Quebec, we both the Jewish community and Muslim community largely are against Bill 21, mm -hmm. where they took away the right to wear religious symbols 
and teach in public schools or work in certain government professions, which equally hurts the man with the kippah and the woman with the hijab. I think largely the Jewish and Muslim communities are against Bill 96 that takes away language rights from English-speaking Quebecers. There, there's been a lot that unites us as minorities in Quebec. We've largely been allied, but now suddenly the events in the Middle East have come between us to a point where there's so much friction that you know it's, it's very, very scary. It is. It reminds me of, of being in, in Paris in the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo shooting. And then there was the attack on the kosher uh, grocery store uh, in, in a Parisian suburb, more or less. You know, just seeing the fear within the community and then the amount of security that had to be put in place and so on, just the different reality. And also remembering that there were times where imams and rabbis would show up together to try to preach the kind of, to try to talk about talking to each other. And I'm, I, I don't know if I've seen enough of that just yet in, here. I mean, it must be happening, but I don't know if I've seen enough. Do you think that might help? I think the emotions are too raw right now. Right. I mean, you know, liberal members of parliament who are Jewish and Muslim are meeting weekly and talking to each other. Um, and we certainly agree that while we don't agree on what's happening in the Middle East, we have to agree to try to calm the waters here in Canada and, and make sure that people get along here. But the emotions are so raw. Um, for example, one of the biggest issues that I understand from my Muslim colleagues is that they're afraid their free speech rights are being taken away, right? Like they're right. they're feeling that people going to protests that they see as legitimate protests are being told if you say XXX, you're going to be shunned or you're going to lose your job or you're going to, you know. And at the same time, the Jewish community sees it exactly the opposite because the words that they say are their free speech is exactly what's scaring the Jewish community. The Jewish community, when you hear Palestine will be free from, you know, from, 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 from the ocean to the sea or what, you know, like, like these slogans, what it is speaking of to us is the eradication of the state of Israel and the elimination of Jewish people. You know, so, so when, you, when you hear that slogan to you, to some people, it means one thing to Jews, it's hate speech almost. When you, when you hear attacks on Zionists and that, you know, how horrible the Zionists are, well, most Jews are Zionists. Zionist means that to me, that Israel has a right to, to exist uh, as a Jewish and democratic state. It's very personal, and the the views are so diametrically opposite that I'm not sure right now how much an imam and a rabbi could come together and maintain the support of their own communities because, you know, like we all agree that we should keep this this dispute away, but then the emotions are so raw. Jews largely strongly support Israel, you know, understand that Hamas is a terrorist organization, understand Israel's you know, what, what Israel just lived through killing the killing the brutal murder of over 1400 people and understand why Israel wants to go after Hamas that is a terrorist organization that's constantly threatening Israel. Mm -hmm. On the other side, many people in the Muslim community have a different view of the history of Israel and Palestine, view Israel as an oppressor and view innocent civilians being killed in, in Gaza and don't acknowledge that Hamas has built tunnels under mosques and 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 schools and 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 that it's an appropriate military target. And I think again the views, while there's again a, a, a multiplicity of different views in each community, I'm afraid right now that the emotions are so afraid that the wonderful image of like religious leaders coming together, which I think would be great, I don't know that it could happen right now. Anthony Housefather is the MP for Mount Royal, the riding in Montreal. We're speaking tonight about uh, a really alarming rise in acts of anti-Semitism, violent acts of anti-Semitism in this country. Anthony, you know what? I, you know what I really worry about here, and and this applies across the board because I understand why people who have an attachment to the Palestinians 
feel a lot of emotion about what's happening in Gaza. I mean, I get it. It's it's not hard to understand. And and, and also, I obviously understand from having grown up in Montreal and uh, have lots of friends of the Jewish community, understand the pain and the hurt that of, of October the 7th and the fear and the anger about what's happened since with these very targeted attacks against against the community here for something that's happening overseas. Uh, I guess what I worry about here is that what does it take for it to cool down? Because it feels like someone's going to get hurt here. And that's what I really worry about. No, I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm very much afraid of that. And I think, honestly, the police need to step in. Um, the police need to be vigilant that demonstrations that are called for legitimate reasons don't spiral out of control by having acerbic speakers spout hate speech. I mean, I think we had that with Mr. Sharkawi, right. who last weekend, you know, at a rally, uh, we've all seen the video what he essentially called for was the murder of, uh, of Zionists, the the celebration of what happened on the 7th of October. You know, that cannot be allowed in Canada. So it creates a, a sense of insecurity for the Jewish community that while I imagine the police are th doing things behind the scenes and investigating whatever, you know, the idea that this can happen and these rallies can keep, like today, for example, again, there was a rally and what didn't receive a permit near the universities where the 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 paper that was given out for this pro-Palestinian rally or what they what they called the free you know Palestine mm. rally was a picture of broken glass. It's a right and today is Kristallnacht, which is the day in 1938 when Jews in Germany and Austria were had all their businesses windows broken and hundreds were taken away to concentration camps in the night of broken glass. So so they're deliberately using that image of broken glass from 1938, right before the Holocaust, to extol their rally today in Montreal. When you say like that the two sides are equal, well, the two sides are not equal here, yeah. right? You don't have pro-Israel rallies that are devolving into these fiestas of hate. And, and I think what the Jewish community wants to see is sane voices in the pro-Palestinian community saying, we should not be having rallies like this. We shouldn't be having rallies in front of Jewish community centers. We shouldn't be having rallies at an anti-Semitism conference. And we shouldn't be allowing speakers like Mr. Sharkawi to speak at our rallies. And I think once those demonstrations calm down, once they become less you know, scary to the Jewish community, then maybe a dialogue can start again. But I think the demonstrations are one of the big reasons that things are spiraling out of control because they're bringing emotions up to a wide, a wild level. You know, 85 years since Kristallnacht today. I mean, speak, it's an anniversary, even, even more. Uh, I mean, I know you have Muslims in, in your writing as well. I mean, in constituents, so what do you, what do you, what do you say? I mean, I think you've just said most of it, but I guess that's what you hope for, right? You hope for moderate voices to, to quiet yeah, things. There down. are many, there yeah. are many, my colleague, Talib Nur Muhammad, you know, who is a very, you know, important member of the Liberal Caucus from BC, uh, near where you are. So I raised Talib. He's put out very, um, you know, statements that are very balanced and very, very clear and compelling. And there are many voices in the Muslim community. They think that that's why I keep saying, I think it's a small minority that have hijacked what is happening here in the debate. Yeah, uh, it feels like we're a long way off still. Anthony, as always, thank you so much. Such a pleasure, Ben. Have a great weekend. Earlier this month, and we'll talk, here, here's a border issue that maybe maybe some of the reasons why sometimes the border gets the spotlight in America is, is a bit of concern over how 
organized crime functions in this country? Because clearly, at least according to my next guest, there is a problem. There is a real problem with how we're, Canada is seen as a soft underbelly for some of these things. So earlier this month, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, this is an all-party group that get together and talk about sort of the most pressing national security and intelligence issues, put out a really starkly worded report about the country's ability to counter the threats posed by extremists and organized crime. And it talks about the RCMP in particular. The committee said the RCMP cannot operate, quote, effectively as it must to protect Canadians from these serious national security and criminal threats and urgently needs a major overhaul. The key threats investigated by federal policing, uh, and they point out this is where the weaknesses are with the RCMP, not the contract policing that you might be familiar with if you live in any number of provinces um, other than Quebec and Ontario, uh, but the federal policing unit, kind of like the FBI part of this, right? Um, or violent extremism, transnational and serious organized crime, financial crime, foreign interference, we've talked about that a lot, espionage, and cybercrime. They say, of course, these threats are not mutually exclusive. In fact, oftentimes these threats are all bundled into one thing these days. Um, none of this comes as a surprise. None of this comes as a surprise to former RCMP Superintendent Gary Clement. He spent more than 30 years with the Mounties, including fighting drug crime, organized crime, money laundering, and much more. And as part of the RCMP's Proceeds of Crime program, he's now written a book where he looks back on those years uh, from growing up to fighting crime, his early days when it was really sort of a, you know, a, a, you know, a boot leather kind of thing was really, it was really, you know, investigations were about hard work. And it's because so much more sophisticated these days. Um, and he looks into why the RCMP has not been able to keep pace and, and, and therefore can no longer counter a lot of these threats effectively or not as effectively as they should. The book is called Undercover Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime in the RCMP. It's out on November the 14th. Um, just as an aside, I met Gary Clement many years ago when he was the police chief in Coburg, and one of his officers was killed in the line of duty. It was a horrific time for Coburg, but I remember him distinctly, and uh, you know, we, we used to meet up over over that time and over many years i'd interviewed him repeatedly so i've known him for a very long time um including uh when he was with the rcmp so in that sense i had an interest in talking about or at least seeing what he had to say and talking about his book as well and uh, gary clement is here with us tonight in terms of titles former rcmp superintendent 34 years with the mounties uh, president and ceo of clement advisory group and he's now the chief money laundering officer for versa bank gary thank you so much welcome back thank you very much ben uh, this is an incredible read because it really, I mean, there, uh, we'll talk about the importance about what the RCMP should be doing going forward, but this really is a glimpse into what the RCMP was over the many years and just how brutal the world of organized crime can be because we forget sometimes uh, just how life and death it is. Well, I think you point, you, you really hit on the subject where I, one of the reasons I also wrote this book, I think the biggest problem we've got not just in Canada, but North America, Ben, is the fact that, you know, the public isn't sensitized to the reality of organized crime. And, you know, I, I read this the other day, and I think it really hits home. And it was, I, I think this is what uh, your listeners should think about. You know, there's a professor, he, he has his classroom, and he walks in first day, and he says, points to a uh, youth in the third row. He said, what are you doing in, the, doing in my class? Get out. And the first day, kid looks at him and says, no, I'm sure, get out. So he walks out, professor looks out at everybody and says, do you think that was fair? 
and everybody's shaking their head. He said, but that's the problem with society. You see something's wrong, but unless it directly impacts you, you do nothing. And that's where we're at today in society. And I, you know, I think that's the problem. When we looked at organized crime, we said, well, it's not touching us. So why should I really worry about it? Our politicians are looking at it and saying, you know, is that really going to get me votes for the next election? Is it really something I should worry about? Where in reality, if we put the, all of this into perspective, they impact everything we do because they are in our everyday life you go back to the charbonneau commission in montreal and you look at how organized crime impacted every municipality cost a lot more money for getting paving done we look at today the biggest organized crime group is probably china and, and uh, mexico cartels and we got the fentanyl crisis well what is that costing it's not just in health care and but lost youth that could be a valuable uh resource for our society and so we start looking at all this stuff so we got a health system in crisis a lot of it comes from drugs well that's directly impacted by organized crime we've got a human trafficking network that is second to none uh, we're letting transnational organized crime in our country left right and center and a good friend of mine uh, Dr. Christine LaPresse just is putting an op-ed piece out talking about how Canada has been a major funder of uh, Hamas. Well, when you look at what's going on there, you have to really ask yourselves, is that the kind of country that we want? And for me, I look at it, is this the kind of country I want to leave to my children and my grandchildren? So I think that's the reason I'm still uh, so passionate about this. I really think we got to get it right now, and Parliament needs to wake up. This is serious and impacting us all. Right. And, and as you point out, a, a lot of this, too, I mean, state state actors, and I'll, I'll use Russia as an example, but state actors have adopted the tactics of organized crime. So there's there's a some there's sort of a symbi symbiosis between organized crime and states that would do wrong by us. And I think we're seeing that as well. So it's not just about the money and the drug. I mean, no. it's about the drugs, too. But there's a lot of parallels now and a lot of intertwining between state actors who would like to do Canada harm and organized crime that will do the harm for them alongside them in other words very much so and, and you know probably the best example is that is china that uh you know going back to ping he created that uh, uh entente with the triads which is the asian-based organized crime look at where we're at today and look what we're seeing today a lot of that is triad lad so these are the type of things so you've got russia you've got china i've done lots of interviews on iran and what was happening on young street all of that is directly impacting this country and and you know this is where we got to look at our legislation it's not just a case of looking at the rcmp and saying we need a new a federal policing unit, which we do, but you can have the best unit in the world, but if our legislation doesn't support them moving forward, then we're only going halfway and it's not going to be successful. So it's time for Canada to do a complete gap analysis and take this seriously and do something about it. You mentioned the RCMP, and that's a big focus of the book, too. That uh, and, and actually, there was a, a committee of parliamentarians this week, the NISCOP, the National Security Committee, that, that completely paralleled what you argue in this book that was written earlier than their report, needless to say, which is that the RCMP, as it is now set up, is just not able to contend with the kinds of organized crime challenges 
that they now face, which are different from the ones that you were facing 30 years ago. They've evolved in a way and policing just hasn't been able to keep up. What's the problem, do you think, uh, right now in terms of the RCMP's capacity to fight some of these issues that you think are that you say are absolutely crucial to our national security? Well, the biggest dilemma has been going back to around the time I left was that government stopped funding a lot of the federal units. So we had to carry gaps, uh, our vacancies over that. Second problem was that federal, the contract policing, those positions have to be maintained. So where's the easiest way to steal from? Well, steal it from the federal resources. The other part, uh, which I argue in my book, and I think I show very effectively, Uniform is a rank-based organization. You need your rank in that. You don't need it in federal policing. But unfortunately, if a young member wants is smart and he's got, you know, uh, has lots of motivation, where's he going to get his promotions? Well, Uniform's the biggest side. So you bring him into a specialized unit, you train them up, spend, you know, $1,000 getting them trained. And six months later, they find a, a promotional position in Uniform and traffic in somewhere. And not, I'm not demeaning traffic, but Federal policing and contract policing are totally different. And I look at, if, if we were to do a, a business analysis, looking at this strictly as a business and saying, okay, how effective is the RCMP? And are we getting banged for our buck? We'll take a look at the prime ministerial security detail. That's not investigative resources you require. You need specialized uh, VIP training. You don't need investigative resources. We take a look at uh, the embassy patrol. It's a step above security guards. And yet we have trained investigative resources driving around for protection. And then you look at, we still have the musical ride. We lose all of those investigative resources for three years. And I, what I'm looking at is, let's think smarter. Let's run this like a business. You could civilianize that, uh, the, the musical ride. There's lots of people. My wife rode horses, uh, right? Well, she still does. When she was younger, she would love to do that for three to five years at probably about a third of the, or half the cost of what they're paying for members to do it. Those are the type of things that we've got to get smarter. The other thing is, when I started, computers didn't exist. Right. We're, not, we're now dealing with complex organized crime. We're dealing with generative AI. We're dealing with the ability I could, you and I could have this conversation. I could use generative AI and I could recreate you on a screen and change this interview totally. And that's the type of things that we have to wake up. Well, that's specialized resources. That's federal policing. It's not uniform. Gary Clement is a former RCMP superintendent. Uh, he is now chief money laundering officer for Versa Bank. He has a new book out called Undercover, Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime in the RCMP. We've been talking about just how much organized crime has evolved, how dangerous it is both on a criminal and national security level these days for Canada, and how much trouble the RCMP is having dealing with it, given this current structure that it's uh, it's set up under. So little of the money and resources go to federal policing. So much of it goes to contract policing, which exists pretty much everywhere outside of Ontario and Quebec. Uh, Gary, it's, you, you make the, I mean, there is an urgency to this now, I believe. And I'm wondering if you feel like people are listening because, you know, this model has been in place for a long time. I was looking at the stats, federal policing for the RCMP, just gets just a fraction of the RCMP's budget these days. It's a big moneymaker, the contract policing, I think. Um, so this is going to be a tough slog. You'd be, we, you know, you're going to have to convince people that uh, federal policing is where the focus should be. 
Well, I think if you really had it put it in perspective, we did what is required, a gap analysis, and put the right resources to it. I firmly believe that you could probably have this almost self-sustaining. You take a look at how much money is going in and much money is being laundered. We're just not capturing it. The only way they're capturing it is the provinces are doing it through civil forfeiture. But they're you know, they're cherry picking. What's the easiest route to take? That's not preventing the organized crime that we have today. So to, to say that it's, you know, is it expensive? Absolutely. But what's more expensive to allow the uh, influx, continued influx of narcotics that's coming into this country, to allow the abuse of young girls and pornography and things like that? Because all of these things are part and parcel to organized crime. Are we going to continue to allow state actors to operate in our country and not have the wherewithal to stop it. We're de my view and why I say there's an urgency, if we look around the world and we look at all the uprising that we're in some perilous times, in my view. It could uh, be a powder keg tomorrow. Uh, that could mean more and more state actors coming into our country and more and more fundraising for terrorist groups. We can't allow that to happen. Canada needs to gain its reputation back. Um, we've lost, I think, a lot of it. The, a couple things have happened lately. Uh, uh, with the intelligence officer leaking or working with organized crime. It's not the first time it's happened to the RCMP. It's going to happen. But we got to get a reputation there. We got to show the ability to do these type of investigations. Does the RCMP have the, the members available that can do it? Absolutely, if they're given an opportunity. They're not given an opportunity. But besides that, the government has to look at our legislation. Mm. The Jordan Stinchcomb, where it's all the full disclosure in the Jordan case involving a speedy trial, we know what's happening. They're, they're you know, judges are throwing cases out that are very serious, you know, right up to rape and murder. And, you know, I look at that as a society. Is that really justice or is justice bringing itself into disrepute? And those are the things I think we need to look at. Do we need a RICO type statute that you find in the United States? It's something worth looking at. A wire fraud statute is fairly easy. Should federal officers be treated the same as the FBI, where it's an offense to lie to a federal officer? Doesn't mean you're a compelled have to com you're compelled to make a statement, but you can't lie. Those are the type of things I think is if we're serious and want to fight organized crime on their level, these are the things we need to look at. Because you you put it that that organized crime and, and other countries, to be frank, really do see Canada as a bit of a soft target uh, these days. That they see that they can take advantage of of the way. I mean, in some ways, they use our freedoms against us, which is unfortunate. Uh, but Canada's always been a bit rosy, been sort of uh, rose colored glasses when it comes to some of this stuff. I get the impression, and it's coming back to bite us right now. You're, you hit the nail right in the head. I can tell you, and as you know, uh, for three years, I was traveling all over both Europe and North America when I was the executive vice president of the Association of Certified Financial Crime Specialists. I dealt with law enforcement. I dealt with uh, large financial institutions, and we were considered the Maytag of the North. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a statement I remember years ago. But I think more than anything, and that came out of the Cullen Commission, it is established that we have just allowed transnational organized crime in this country uh, almost with an open door policy. That's impacting, as we know it impacted the real estate industry. We know it's impacted our casinos. And the concern I have now, 
how much corruption has been created because of this? Because we know that some of these state actors have inf infiltrated every one of our uh, government organizations. What's the impact down the road if we don't get a handle on this for your children and my children and their, our grandchildren? That's my concern. Well, Gary, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on the book. I should say it's out on the 14th. The launch is, is tonight. Uh, the launch is now. Yes. Uh, uh, Gary, congratulations on the book. Thank you. I, it's a very timely call. Hopefully folks in Ottawa are listening not just tonight, but sit down and read the book as well. Thank you very much as always. You may have seen this tonight. We've been talking about favorite border towns uh, over the course of the evening because you may have been paying attention last night when Vivek Ramaswamy, he's one of the nominees or the whole five of them uh, in Miami last night. And of course, you know, Donald Trump isn't taking part in these. So uh, there's a lot of sound and fury amongst the others because so many of them, they're so far behind in this race right now with, uh, you know, with not that much time to go uh, that it feels like without the front runner there, all of them are trying to create more noise, right? Uh, so Vivek Ramaswamy is one of them. He's 38. He's certainly been the most uh, controversial of the of the uh, of the the uh, candidates and here's what he had to say about Canada last night because it raised a lot of eyebrows what we need to do is stop using our military to protect somebody else's border halfway around the world when we're short right here at home get serious about protecting this border and then the other thing that hasn't been discussed is the northern border I'm the only candidate on the stage, as far as I'm aware, who has actually visited the northern border. There was enough fentanyl that was captured just on the northern border last year to kill three million Americans. So we got to just skate to where the puck is going, not just where the puck is. Don't just build the wall, build both walls. That was Vivek Ravaswamy last night. So needless to say, that caused a fair amount of controversy right now. Uh, people were asked about it today. The BBC wrote about it. Uh, Donald Trump uh, dismissed it, believe it or not, he of the wall, uh, dismissed it as being a ridiculous idea. But it got me thinking about the whole notion of why it is that a certain segment of certainly the political class in the U.S. seem to be a bit obsessed with the idea of building walls instead of just, you know, creating better policy that acts like a wall. I mean, it's very hard for a country the size of the U.S. to seal itself off that way. Imagine building, I mean, the Canada-U.S. border, if you include Alaska, is about 88 100 kilometers long. That's a very, very long wall. It would never work. Um, Marty Lierda Anderson, Lierda Anderson is with uh, the University of Windsor, and she joins me now to talk about this more. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Nice to be with you. Well, I suppose we should deal with the distraction first because it was clearly a ridiculous statement, but wow, it got a lot of attention. So Vivek Ramaswamy last night declares that maybe maybe America should be looking at building not just one uh, huge wall, but another one along the largest, longest undefended border in the world. I guess just your initial reaction to it. I mean, it is a distraction, but still, there's there's a reason why it comes up. You know, Ben, I think you just said it. It's the, the longest undefended border in the world. Canada, the U.S. have the most unique relationship on many levels uh, than any other two countries in the world, least of which is the trading relationship, which is so important to both of our economies. So, yeah, when, when folks like presidential candidates make distracting comments like that, it's, uh, it, it really does deter from the serious discussions that have been going on for years. Yeah. If it's any solace, even Donald Trump came out today and said it was a bad idea, more, more or less. I mean, it's it, the idea, even putting it out there, I think sometimes it's weird what's happened in America. I mean, I lived in China for a while. We're not near the Great Wall, actually. So I think over history, there's always been this idea that good fences make good neighbors, even amongst 
nations. But the idea that America could seal itself off with walls, especially on its northern border, is just even even logistically ludicrous. You know, it's funny because um, it's not the first time somebody had suggested that there be a wall between Canada and the U.S. I think there was a previous Republican candidate. Scott Walker. Yeah, Scott Walker. (laughs) Who had made the comment. And I I believe that Canada's uh, ambassador to the United States said, well, we do have the Great Lakes and not quite sure how we build a a wall across the Great Lakes. (laughs) But I just, you know, it's it's really quite interesting when you talk about borders and walls and history. You know, at the Cross Border Institute here at the University of Windsor, we love borders. We think borders allow a lot of good things to happen. It allows sovereign countries to apply their specific laws within their own borders, within their own nation. And that's good because even as close as we are in many ways and very similar in many ways, to our our friends and cousins and family in the United States, we do have very different laws, and and it it sets us apart. We are a sovereign nation. Yeah, Ontario and Ontario and Michigan. I mean, Windsor, where you are, you could stare across the river right into downtown Detroit. There's no finer example of that uh, of that difference, perhaps, than where you sit tonight. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking outside of my office window and I and I'm watching the trucks cross the Ambassador Bridge. And and again, you raise a great point. Those of us who live in border regions, uh, and most of the Canadian population does, uh, we we understand the importance of borders in spades. And when somebody makes a comment that's offhanded and not really rooted in a in any kind of real um, facts or research or any kind of reality, it throws a, a little bit of a stone in the gears and makes makes us scratch our head to wonder, geez, does anybody really know how important these borders are? Um, so, yeah, it's it's really a unique, a unique thing. And, you know, tonight folks are crossing the border to go watch the, the Red Wings playing in Detroit. So, right. you know, on all kinds of levels, it's really important. Yeah. If I remember correctly, you could see you could see the arena from from the Windsor side. If I remember correctly, I used to look over well, at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Detroit skyline is always beautifully lit up. So we're, we're really lucky here in Windsor. There's obviously something going on, though, specifically within the Republican Party in the U.S. about this idea of hermetically. I mean, I understand isolationism, but to sort of hermetically seal the United States, the continental United States, seems like such an absolutely ridiculous way of approaching issues you may have with your border, specifically, I guess, in the case of the Republicans with the southern border. Uh, But still, this idea that you can wall off a country as large as America, it just seems it seems like the the most simplistic and ridiculous way of solving what are truly complex issues. You know, Ben, it's one of those ideas that I think grow out of frustration. And usually the frustration arises from isolated events. I mean, if we think back to 9-11, when the Ambassador Bridge here was closed, it was shut down and commercial traffic was not moving, passenger traffic was not moving, it was closed. It really lit up a lot of activity between the most senior levels of government in Washington and Ottawa to to dedicate themselves to understanding the critical importance of how commercial traffic needs to continue moving between our two countries because of the level of trade. And level of trade translates into what? That's standard of living for folks. You know, we have an organization between our two countries as well. It's called the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Governors Association. Yes, I've been to that. I've been to that when uh, when uh, Whitmer was in was in charge, I believe. Yes. 
Yeah, and it's a fantastic organization. And what it represents is the, again, the ties uh, economically and other ties that we have between seven U.S. states in the Great Lakes region and two provinces in Canada. Between those seven U.S. states and two provinces, Ontario and Quebec, it represents almost $7 trillion in trade. That is just mind-boggling numbers. So, you know, again, if you think back to significant events, 9-11, the restrictions at the border uh, during COVID, I mean, one of the reasons the commercial traffic moved so well between our two countries was because of all the dedicated work after 9-11. And people committed themselves, uh, again, at very senior levels of government to say, we can't have this happen again. The economic hardships are just too far and too broad. And we got to find a better way. And by and large, uh, Canada and the U.S., and I would even add to that Mexico, um, through the NAFTA renegotiations and the new USMCA, we're, we're doing pretty darn good. Marta Liardi-Anderson is with us, Executive Director of the Cross-Border Institute at the University of Windsor. We're talking about borders since it came up in the Republican, Republican nominee debate in Miami last night. Of course, Donald Trump is not there, so people aren't really paying that much attention. But Vivek Ravaswamy, one of the hopefuls, he's a 38-year-old tech guy, talked about building an, a border, not just one border wall with along the U.S.-Mexico border, but one along the Canadian-U.S. border as well. Now, what exactly he meant by it, he didn't exactly go into details, but it's been uh, resoundingly dismissed. And of course, we Canadians are talked about this way, we like to react. So today we are reacting. Marta, though, when one looks across at the state of politics in the U.S., though, I mean, it must be somewhat concerning times for if you're a cross-border institute, because the idea of borders as bad things has become sort of gospel to some parts of the a lot of the Republican Party right now, and they may well be back in power next year. Yeah, you know, Ben, it's it's those events that happen uh, over time that I think become flashpoints for folks. And the politics around it can kind of create a fog around the real hard work that goes on every day. I mean, hats off to folks who are on the front lines at the borders between our two countries, the Customs and Border Protection officers, as well as the Canadian Border Services Agency on the Canadian side. You know, on the northern border, uh, we we have twenty four seven operations, and they do an enormous amount of hard work, heavy lifting every hour of every day, to move commercial traffic between our two countries. I mean, here at at the Ambassador Bridge, we're talking eight thousand trucks a day. We're talking thousands of passenger vehicles a day. Um, We're talking about nurses that leave Windsor and Essex County to go work in hospitals and other medical clinics in the areas of of Michigan, Southeast Michigan. There's a a tremendous amount of of skill and economic benefits. But yeah, I mean, sometimes there's these flashpoints and they were highlighted during COVID. You know, the the stress that our supply chains were under, um, I think, gave some folks on the political side the opportunity to say, gosh, you know, why don't we do more stuff within our own country so that we don't have to rely on on supply chains? Um, And, you know, the good news about that, Ben, is that both Ottawa and both Washington have put a tremendous amount of work into looking at our very critical supply chains, manufacturing being one of them, medical supply chains, um, of course, military supply chains. You know, a little while ago, the Premier of Ontario signed uh, an MOU with the governor of the state of Michigan, um, and it's focused on creating 
more trade and taking a look at e-vehicles and the supply chains for for that part of our automotive industry. Right. I don't think that's what I don't think that's what Vivek's getting at, though. I mean, what he's talking about is crime, right? He's talking about illegal immigration and drugs. And I mean, that's I think that's where I think everyone understands the importance of the commercial relationship. But it's this idea, this perception amongst some in the U.S. that Canada is a porous border, that it that it that it's open season for criminality crossing over to the border. I think that's the and and it also plays into fears about the about the U.S. Mexico border. It's sort of this anti borderism, if you want to call it that. And I guess that's something that maybe we don't deal with. We don't. We don't dispel those perceptions enough in the U.S. You know, Ben, I think the facts, when you take a look at the numbers, the numbers are really quite telling. Uh, the amount of fentanyl uh, specifically, I think, if I if I recall reading the, the data a couple of months ago, Customs and Border Protection seized about maybe two pounds of fentanyl right. um, from Canada into the U.S. I think to date, the U.S. has confiscated almost 30,000 pounds of fentanyl. And and it's not the way the fentanyl supply chain. No, works. no. I, I, and I agree with you completely on the facts. I think it's more the perception. It's this idea. I mean, even after 9-11, there was this, early rumors were that they had crossed over from Canada. Uh, you know, there's this just this idea in the U.S., I guess it'll never go away, that somehow this border is a bit of a threat to them. This long, undefended border that has served both our countries so well is somehow constantly sort of cycled back through the political discourse as being somehow vulnerable. Right. I guess that's the issue. I think so, too. And we only ever hear when things go wrong. We don't hear about the 99 times that things go well all day long. And as I said, I mean, this border is open 24-7. Border officials work very hard all the time to ensure that the bad people and the bad stuff stay out of our countries. And by and large, I think they do a great job at that. But again, Ben, you know, uh, if folks are are bent on wanting to hear the bad news, that's what they're going to look for. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we can all rest assured they will not be. They won't be starting construction on a border wall anytime soon. But it's it's still an interesting. It's interesting that it was brought up in that context. Marta, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Ben. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.